This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text to refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 133, and today I sat down with Vimla Blackgupta, the co-founder and CEO of Ourself. Ourself is the first ever subtopical skincare system that is defining a new category in beauty by bridging the gap between traditional skincare products and clinical procedures. Ourself's proprietary formulations leverage biotechnology to provide an at-home alternative to needles and lasers, delivering clinical-level results without the clinic. Vimla and I talked about her childhood growing up in Washington, D.C., where one of her first jobs was selling ice cream from a cart at a local mall where she grew to become manager and realized her interest in business. She shares her impressive career journey since then, from working at Procter & Gamble for nearly a decade, to working at Estee Lauder and leading global marketing at Bobby Brown Cosmetics, to becoming the global CMO of Equinox, and then starting Ourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, tell some of your friends, and you can check us out on StairwayToCEO.com. Hi, Vimla. How are you today? I'm great. Good. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Absolutely. I'm very excited to hear about your company, Ourself. Such a cool name, Ourself. I keep wanting to say Ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) But Ourself is a really good name. So I can't wait to hear how you guys came up with the name and your whole journey. Uh, But you are calling in from the Hamptons right now. That's correct? Yes, I am. Wonderful. I'm on the West Coast here in Los Angeles. And I'd love to start out with learning more about your childhood and how you grew up. Where are you from originally? I'm from Washington, D.C. Oh, okay, cool. So kind of like an East Coaster for life. Totally. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. What was it like growing up? Did you have siblings? What did your parents do? You know, growing up was amazing. It was magical, actually. You know, I grew up right in Washington, D.C., My parents went to college there. They went to Howard University. My dad came straight from India when he was 16, and my mom came from Charleston, South Carolina. They met on the campus of Howard University and got married and had three kids. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And growing up, D.C. was just this very magical place to be sort of in the belly of, you know, political action, you know, and to actually live right in the city was just so... A vibrant, exciting, and and just really interesting. Um, DC is super international, and I felt really fortunate to have my you know formative years there. I really created it. Really created me and, and influenced the person that I am. Yeah. So, what? How would you describe like what kind of kid were you, and what did you want to be when you grew up? I really loved life. I was a really happy kid. Um, curious. I love to have fun, but I love to work hard. And I, you know, I was really academic and, but I also love to 
play and, and have fun. So I, I think I was pretty balanced. What did I want to be? It's funny, you know, I didn't know what this, I didn't know what marketing was, quite frankly, until after I got out of college. But what I did know that I loved is I would love to go to the drugstores, honestly, and I would love to go up and down the aisles and look at product, right? I didn't have a ton of money. And I, I think it was all just lust, right? Looking at shampoos and conditioners and like, just, you know, what it said on the package and what it smelled like and what the fragrances were. And, you know, I didn't know then until after college that that was marketing, right? That was consumer packaged goods. And I loved it. You know, I would love to go to the store and see what they said in store and then watch the TV commercial. Um, it just all fascinated me. And I think it was all about desire, you know, how and communication and Again, I didn't know that's what I was going to be until uh, much, much later in life, but I was excited that uh, it came quite naturally. It's so funny how things in our childhood, I always, I've talked about this a few times on the show for those listening, sorry to say this a million times, but as a kid, I remember um, my one of my school teachers being kind of, you know, I saw her as the, she was the leader of the pack, obviously, you know, telling every kid what to do and da, da, da. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to, you know, be a teacher, but really what I wanted to be was a leader. So it's funny, I think looking back at our childhood, how we have these like natural interests that we don't really understand at the time that lead us to, I think, what we ultimately want to do. Absolutely. So what was one of the biggest challenges that you had as a kid growing up? Just really understanding who I was and what I wanted to be. You know, we didn't have the luxury of a lot of money growing up. And so I always wanted to, you know, figure out like how I was going to you know, get the best education, get the right job. And part of that was just figuring out, well, how am I going to do that? And I, and I think that was a challenge for me is because I, while I went to school and I loved school, I loved it. And then I went to, again, a liberal arts education. You could argue that I never earned anything, learned anything super practical that would just get me that obvious next job. Right. I loved Latin and ancient Greek, which are not helpful. They're, they're good for vocabulary, but um, unless I wanted to be a teacher and I actually was a Spanish literature major, I, I one of the things I should add that colored my childhood is I went to a bilingual public elementary school. It was called Oyster Bilingual School, whereby they, you know, half of your classes are taught in Spanish and half in English. Um, and, you know, by the sixth grade, by the time I graduated, I was fully you know, fully fluent. And wow. so many people ask me, oh, well, do your parents speak French? Actually, they don't. My mother, <laughs> my father is uh, Indian. He speaks Hindi. And my mom is African-American, grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. We really, really didn't, you know, aside from my father speaking Hindi, we didn't really have a second language in the household. But my parents had the foresight to see that getting a bilingual education could be incredibly helpful. And particularly it was public, it was free. Um, so I, I'm forever thankful for that. And that also just really colored who I am. I ended up going on to be, become a Spanish literature major in college, not because I wanted to be a Spanish teacher, but just because I really enjoyed it. But again, sort of had this great education, but didn't necessarily know what I wanted to be until I hearkened back to my days walking up and down drugstore aisles and realized whatever that was, that's what I wanted to do. Right. So you have such an inspiring, amazing career. I'm wondering before kind of going down the path of working for Procter and Gamble and, you know, Estee Lauder and Equinox and all these amazing places that you've worked, what were some of your very first jobs, maybe like during college or during high school? Yeah. So when I was, well, gosh, in high school, I, I worked in so many, I, my first job ever, I was at my father's friend's store on Connecticut Avenue and he sold boom boxes and saris, you know, saris are Indian dresses, literally those two things. So I learned about electronics and retail, you know, and fashion all in one. So that was my very first job. But my second most profound job is I sold ice cream from an ice cream cart um, on the Washington Mall, on the monuments. Uh, so my station for, and I did that for years, I ended up becoming the manager by my senior year of high school, but we would have a, a ice cream cart and all across, we had probably 30 different carts and I would man the Lincoln Memorial for one summer, one summer I did the Washington Monument, you know, I was sort of all over the place. Um, and then when I became a manager, I got to ride a golf cart up and down the mall, you know, making sure that I was replenishing all the ice cream carts with, with ice cream. I loved 
that job. That sounds pretty awesome. I think I would love to be in a golf cart cruising right, around. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it would, but it was really dynamic. I mean, I remember I was so proud my ice cream cart would pull in $2,000 a day from selling Robo Pops, brown cows, or uh, chocolate chip witches. And ice, yeah, ice cream chip witches and three skews. I mean, right. So it was just very efficient. It was three skews, this one cart. And I loved it because that's when I also just realized that it was business. And I loved customer service. I loved speaking. You know, you really got to get to know your customers. And I loved it. And I loved becoming a manager. I loved, you know, sort of seeing the progression of my career, you know, selling ice cream. And I made a lot of money. You know, I really did minimum wage. I mean, by the time I was a manager, I was making $8.75 an hour. And I, Saved up a lot of money when I, when I went to Duke University. And when I went to Duke, I, I went, I had scholarship and I had loans, but I had money in my pocket. And that meant so much to me. And uh, I continued to work all through college, but I really, you know, so much of my sort of formative, you know, formative years were about working. And so going to college and knowing I had to go to class, but also I, you know, I had work study jobs. It was really, it was just part of who I, who I was. And I had the great luck of, so one of the things that I also loved was photography. My father was a photographer and I went Your to Duke. Your dad was a photographer? I, yeah. My I'm dad was a photographer. A, really? Yeah. Where was he a photographer? So I grew up in Delaware and um, oh. he kind of served the tri-state area. So like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware. Um, and he was uh, most he was actually a wedding photographer when I was a kid. And then he tried to shift out of that and totally pivoted into architectural photography, which he still does today. It's like architectural and commercial. So he'll do like drugstores or schools or big million dollar homes. And yeah, he works with a lot of like architects and helps them win awards. And he's really good. He's gotten good at it, you know, over the past <laughs> couple of years. It's been a while. That's amazing. Oh, that's amazing. My father was in public relations. He worked for the DC government and, um, he, uh, yeah, he was amazing and taught me so much. And when I, by the time I got to college, I started to take pictures for our yearbook and um, ended up getting, becoming the editor of the yearbook, which ended up being a full year scholarship at Duke. And um, that ended up becoming my job. I mean, it's a full-time job. So you went to school and you're, uh, you know, you're really an employee of the school. That was just, you know, I just loved it. I loved the intensity of having such a big job and working and having to go to school at the same time. So were you also doing the photography for the yearbook? Correct. So you um, had to go to like everything. You had to go to yeah, every I got event. To go to a lot of Duke basketball games. We were in the, um, and we, you know, we were in the championships four times, one twice. Wow. So it was pretty, uh, it was pretty exciting. That's wild. And sorry, you were saying that your dad worked for the government. What kind of photography was he doing for the government? He worked um, in HHS for Health and Human Services, and he worked specifically on vocational rehabilitation, which was really about sort of how do you find professionals who've had, you know, been rehabbed in some way, shape or form and getting them back into the workforce and continuing education. Huge, huge champion um, of that entire industry and mission. Um, and he would do a lot of sort of bringing their images to life quite powerfully. Wow. That's really cool. And so you kind of had this photographer kind of in your blood. So then you um, put it to work to put the yearbook together at Duke. I did. Um, I got did. a full ride basically doing that as a full-time yes, job. For right? one of, yes. For one of my years, um, wow. which is a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, that's so a I, lot of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure your parents are really excited too. <laughs> yes, very much so. That's awesome. So after you graduated, I know that you, I think, went off to start at Procter & Gamble. How did you get that job? So actually, to back up a little bit, when I graduated, I didn't have that job. I actually, I got an opportunity to work for a guerrilla marketing agency that was marketing a thing called Gatorade Light. Doesn't exist anymore. It was poorly positioned. But Gatorade Light was this idea of it's a lower calorie. It was very ahead of its time, a lower calorie Gatorade. The problem with it is that everyone thought that they were sacrificing their electrolytes versus calories. But we're a guerrilla marketing group um, in the, in the tri-state area. We'd go around and just do these events. 
And after, during that time, and Gatorade was part of Quick Roads, and during that time, I knew that I wanted to do, I was like, whatever this is, this is what I want to do. I learned about brand management, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And I proceeded to apply to every company to become a brand manager. They're like, oh, no, no, no. First of all, we only talk to someone who goes to business, gone to business school, you know, you need experience. And I mean, you only went to Duke, come on, you know, <laughs> couldn't do it. So I actually went ahead and got the best job that I could. I ended up working consulting at Booz Allen and Hamilton. And then I went on to uh, work at Nations Bank, which is now Bank of America, where I went to their management program just to get skills, to get a job, to get into the best business school I could. And I went to Kellogg, which was amazing for marketing. And after my time at Kellogg, I graduated. I went on to Gillette to work at Gillette for, gosh, over 11 years. Procter & Gamble bought Gillette and I stayed with them for about two, two to three years. And that's, that's how I ultimately got oh, to Procter. Oh, that's, that's the story, the hidden story from LinkedIn. of what, Right, right, yeah, exactly. What's not on the resume. Right. That's amazing. Well, thank you for um, sharing that. And so, you know, you were, I think, at Procter & Gamble for almost 10 years. So you weren't from the women's razors and Gillette to Oral-B and um, Venus as well. Yeah. So lots of razor and personal care experience. Yeah. So I always, my husband jokes at a cocktail conversation, I'm really great at talking about any ailments people have, whether it's malodor masking or gingivitis or, you know. Razor bumps. I'm your girl. <laughs> Anything we need to know? Any quick tips to share? You just take care of your skin and do it with frequency. So you, what a kind of um, challenge is, because that's such an incredible career stint that you've had at Procter & Gamble. And that was with within global marketing. What kind of, I guess, like when you look back at that time, what were some of the biggest takeaways and learnings that you've been able to take with you that has helped you in becoming a, a co-founder and a CEO? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, one of the the my formidable years as a marketer at Gillette really was you have to number one for any brand, you have to have a profound profound physical performance, right? It just has to perform. The product has to work. It sounds so basic, but as you probably know, there's so many products out there that just don't, right? And so performance is so key. But as important as performance is that emotional connection is making sure that you are residing in both the hearts and minds of the consumer. They're so inextricably connected. And it seems obvious, but it has been my beacon in life as I think about opportunities, brands I want to work on, that is so supremely important. And I've taken that. It's just, it's such a great framework to think through. It's very easy to forget one and not the other, you know, and it's really about the true magic happens when you can do both. And it's not easy. It just isn't easy. Oftentimes, if you're working on a product that doesn't perform that well, you just try to over deliver on the emotional connection, right? But consumers can sniff that, sniff it out. And so I just think it's a great way to, to really think about, you know, if you have a winning proposition or not. And what are some of the ways, you know, because here you're, you're like a CPG marketing guru. I feel like we need to like get some advice here from the other brands and founders that are tuning in. What key advice do you have for those that are building a brand and they're looking to find better ways to build that emotional connection with their consumers and increase performance, right? So like, what are some yeah. of the things that you've learned that really contribute to that? Talk to your consumers test with your consumers, really get the feedback from the people who you, I mean, it sounds so obvious, but getting feedback and insights from your, your customer, right. And, and really getting at figuring out who that target is. Like number one is just outline, like who is your target consumer? Who is the, what is the biggest size of population that will, you know, where your product is going to resonate and that sounds obvious again, but you know, just that simple exercise of like, okay, well, what are we making? What does it do for you? Like, what should you see and what should you feel? Who is this best made for? Those are just some basic questions that are just, they're, they're critical. And having the discipline to go through that and to do it at the same time, right? Because you can have something that like physically delivers, but man, you've got a brand name or your language around the product is just falling on deaf ears. Or on the flip side, as I mentioned before, it just the, the product, you know, just doesn't perform at all, right? And 
You want to make sure that you're talking with, you know, managing the expectations of what a consumer is going to experience, right? Through that emotional connection. So it's discipline. And it, the discipline really starts with A, knowing your brand, knowing what your product does, but also making sure that you're getting true feedback from the ultimate consumer. And that feedback can, can man it. Listen, you know, everyone can say, I came from Procter & Gillette, you hundreds of thousands of dollars to do research. And that's true. But, you know, in, in this day and age, in social, the way it's sort of digital works, like you can get feedback super, super easily. And it's valuable. All feedback is a gift. Yes. Feedback is super important. And I know that there's a few ways that I've heard that founders have done that, whether it's just doing a, a survey through like, just a survey to a pool of people that they've put together themselves that they believe are their customer base or sending out kind of a, an anonymous survey, I think through like MailChimp or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. There are hi-fi and lo-fi options, but the, it, what's most critical is the feedback. And honestly, the, the other part is, is then is then figuring out what you're going to do with the feedback, right? Because some of that feedback can be painful. And what's more powerful than the research is what you do with it. Marketing is an art and a science, right? And you could be just let the numbers dictate what you should do. But the art is understanding what the numbers are telling you and just helping you inform what your actions are. So it's not it's not easy. It's not a layup. And the research is is one piece of feedback, but it's really about what you do with it. That's going to be important. Yeah. The toughest thing with marketing is so much is hard to track. There are so many things that you can track, but even like in the world of influencer marketing, sometimes that's really, really tough to figure out like how many touch points it takes. And there's so many, you know, when you're working with a lot bigger influencers and it's more about brand awareness, you know, how do you even track all of that? Right. So is that also what you're talking about when you're talking about art? Absolutely. It's an art and a science. And I mean, you have to have a lot of sort of emotional intelligence, right? Just to really understand, you know, how, whether it's an influencer or laid there, are they going to resonate with your audience? Do they really speak to your brand? Do they feel authentic? You know, everyone talks about authenticity and it's critical. Consumers are smart. Consumers have a PhD in all the categories we're working in. They also have a PhD in understanding how marketing works. So the last thing you want to do is be untruthful in any way and, and inauthentic because it'll it'll all fall on deaf ears. Right. And so then you went on to work at SD Lauder. What made you kind of shift from Procter & Gamble to SD Lauder? It was just an amazing time. Um, Estee Lauder has always been a company with brands that I've always admired, and they were going through a transition. They, you know, the Lauders have just had done such a masterful job, obviously, with the company, but they were ready for their next stage of growth. And they had just hired Fabrizio Frida to be their CEO from Procter and Gamble, um, and he was amazing. He had most recently uh, led Pringles, and so there was always this joke of, "What is the Pringles man going to do to Estee Lauder?" It turns out unbelievable things. And I was being recruited at that time by an amazing woman named Jane Huddis, who remains a mentor of mine today, who was running an incredible group called Beauty Bank. And Beauty Bank was really on the forefront of figuring out new distribution for the company, new brands. You know, they quickly saw that there was emerging a new consumer that wasn't looking for the tried and true brands. This was all before the internet, right? They were seeking what's new and different. They were shopping in different places. And Beauty Bank, uh, Beauty Bank really existed to meet consume meet meet the new consumer where she and he are, and so I was recruited by them to run a group called Idea Bank within that group. And Idea Bank was really in charge of creating those next big ideas. And whether it was whether it was helping the acquisitions group thinking about, okay, are these great brands to to think about purchasing to creating brand new brands. And so it was a great opportunity for me, you know, Procter and Gillette are known for their innovation, but to be able to now take that know-how on sort of how do you marshal innovation and do it by creating brand new brands, that was really my opportunity to, to do that, to leave the mothership and go to another mothership and do that again. And so it was the thrill of a lifetime, super, super exciting. And, you know, after doing that for about five years, I then went on to um, lead marketing as the SVP of marketing for Bobby Brown. Great brand. Great brand. Amazing founder. Got to work for Bobby herself, who was just the master, right? Yeah. 
She's the master of innovation. She's the master of branding. She's the master of authenticity. And she's also the master of just knowing what the, she knows what a woman wants, right? She just knows and is relentless in delivering against it. I learned so much from her and had the great honor of leading that brand and marketing as it continued to expand into new markets, create new products, go into skincare and really be a very, you know, at the time it was one of the first very digital first brands. Bobby, when I was there, we created a, this was crazy. I think I almost got fired for it. We uh, created a new channel on YouTube of all places called I Love Makeup. We're like, we're going to create a channel on YouTube and have influencers run it. And which was like, if you can imagine back in the day, that was just crazy town. But, you know, Bobby and the entire brand was all about experimenting and, and doing things differently and they continue to do so today. So that again, was just a, an amazing experience. Yeah, that's awesome. So you were there for a while. What were some of the biggest challenges that you've faced in these amazing roles that you've had? Like, what are some of the big things, lessons that you've had to learn maybe the hard way? I think it's about being brave and a bit fearless. It's really hard. Whether you're working on a new brand or existing brand, you like don't want to break it, right? So when you're in a new brand, you're super precious. You don't want to like piss anyone off, certainly not your consumer. You want to make sure everything that you're doing makes sense. So you're very, very careful, but you still have to be fearless. And like, you know, at one point you just take a leap and you're going to go for it. If you water down everything, you're just going to be like milk toast. No one's not, no one's going to be interested in, you know, you've got to stand for something. So that having the the courage and the know-how to stand for something. When you work on an existing brand, you have the same fear, right? You're like, well, this has worked for years. I don't want to rock the boat. But part of beauty and the pace of beauty is about innovation and continuing to define. And you work, when you work on something like Bobby Brown, she there's huge expectations that she's always going to find and create the new and next. And so what I learned about was being fearless. And it, being fearless does not mean being irresponsible, you're still calculating, but you have to, for something to really resonate and to be big, it has to make you feel uncomfortable. It just does. I'm convinced of it. You can't just have warm and fuzzies. It has to keep you up at night. And I've learned a lot about that. So for example, even with that example, I mentioned you about, I love makeup. Like that was an opportunity for Estee Lauder as a company on the whole to start to experiment being in, you know, working with influencers and to be on things like YouTube. There was a time when brands, understandably, and companies were incredibly trepidatious to go on these platforms and to work with people outside of sort of a professional network, right? Influencers was just this very cottage industry. It was really scary. And scary from the perspective of like, will this ruin the brand, the image that we've set for ourselves, the bar that we've set? Is this going to ruin us and make it feel a different way than we are trying to aim for? Right. Yeah. Right. That's exactly. very like an old set. That's, that's like the pre-social media, like influencer marketing world that used to be fashion and beauty, New York in general. I feel like the whole, yes, I remember that a lot about just brands being very fearful of that. It's so funny because it's just such the opposite time now. It's just the opposite time. But still, what I would say is that there's still caution, Right. Because what you don't want to do is because the stage is so public and so big, you want to make sure that you know how to be in the mediums that you're in, right? And, you know, brands, absolutely. Like, you don't just go on TikTok, right? You know, your brand has to like, you have to be authentic, but you have to also understand how the platform works and how your brand can really resonate with the consumers and their expectations there, right? And so it's, it's you know, what I love about brands is that it is scary, but it's also super exciting because when you get it right and you're over-delivering for, for your consumers, it's it's magical. And so after Estee Lauder, you became global CMO of Equinox. So you shifted, you were like years in the beauty kind of space and personal care and then Equinox. Why the shift? You needed something, you wanted to change it up. What might be little known is that it actually wasn't a big shift for me. So while I was at Gillette and Proctor, I've always been a wellness enthusiast. So going back to my childhood, fitness and like, it just made me feel good. It made me feel like, you didn't have to have money to do it. Like you just had to have your feet and you could run and move. And like that movement for me, I remember when I was young, I was like, 
to me, well, that, that idea of wellness is beauty and beauty and wellness. For me, that was sort of that was sort of my DNA from the beginning. And so then I had always been really being into fitness, became an instructor. I was a yoga instructor. I became a spin instructor. And actually, while I was at Proctor and um, Gillette, I was a spin instructor. So I taught five days a week at 6 a.m. at a bunch of different gyms across Boston. So I was at uh, Equinox. So I was at Crunch. I was at Boston Sports Club. I taught everywhere. And when I was at, when I was at Bobby, um, actually I'd had two kids. I'd had, you know, I had my son and my daughter and this idea of the fusion of wellness and beauty was becoming just this new thing. And what's exciting to me about Equinox was that it was more, it was about these, it was about products. They had products, but they also had experiences and experiences became the new product. And I was like, gosh, what an opportunity for me. I have had this long career. And again, being fearless, I wanted to start to progress, right? To sort of really bring my beliefs and my lifestyle to fruition and what better opportunity to do it, you know, with the most luxurious, inspiring, you know, fitness clubs in the world. Um, And so it's a great opportunity. I joined at a time when we were also creating the first luxury fitness hotel. It was so exciting to be a part of that. And again, I mean, you know, crazy idea, but why, why shouldn't we? And so that category expansion was super interesting. The brand, again, progressing the brand, you know, Equinox has been a brand that has had the mantra, it's not fitness, it's life. How do you continue to progress that? One of the things we learn is you don't. It always is, but it starts to evolve and look different as consumers progress. But, you know, it was one of the learnings there we learned about is like keep the old because the old is still really was very prescient when it was created and meaningful today. But just make sure that sort of that you're keeping it fresh, right? And and making it resonate with what where your consumer is at. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands. It's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills and compostable packets that you can get delivered delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill, perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. And so how did you get the idea for ourself? What's the story behind how that emerged? After I left Equinox, I was, you know, consulting and, and, you know, exploring what I, again, I was sort of ready to do the next thing. And I didn't know what it was, but one thing I did know is I didn't want to go back to beauty. And, and the reason why is that I loved beauty, but I also found beauty to be very much the same. Everyone has very similar technologies. You know, it's just, it's a lot of 
genius marketing, right? You know, who can get the better celebrity or the better packaging and who has better ingredients or better colors. And, and I don't not to be, they're amazing. And I loved working them, but I was, I was, I was ready for something very, very performance oriented. And the only way I told myself that I was going to go back to beauty is if something came, came my way that was truly going to change quite literally the face of beauty meeting me where I am in my life, which is I know what my skincare concerns are. I know the thoughts that are floating my head as I'm looking at Zoom and I'm seeing my wrinkles. Like I know what I'm thinking about. I knew if something came my way where it was going to be addressing sort of in a modern way, the frustrations that consumers are having, that would be interesting. And and it did. Um, the VC reached out to me about this opportunity um, with a company called Glow Pharma. Uh, the founders were Scott Glenn and Lauren Atsuki. They were incredibly impressive founders uh, from the life sciences and medical aesthetics spaces. The two of them created numerous companies that have all delivered against huge unmet consumer needs with very provocative, ownable science and innovation um, that is uniquely theirs. They're the creators of Dexcom, the first continuous glucose monitoring um, device. They're creators of L, which is a, a rapid diagnostic platform. Many of the COVID tests you tests used today come off of their platform. They created leukemia therapy drugs, cardiac drugs, you know, just, and again, all with incredible ex- exits. They went, then went on to the medical aesthetic space where, again, that was a huge unmet need. If you can believe it, there was a time where there was no pre-post skincare for very invasive treatments, whether you've got a facelift or you had a laser, there was no pre post-care. So they create, they were the creators of Skin Medica and Elastin Skincare. And I, you know, with their background and then with their science, which was truly a new non-invasive solution to treating the most profound and stubborn aging concerns in the world with visible results was incredibly, incredibly interesting to me. And, and quite frankly, the, the, the dream of a lifetime. You know, I think it's it's such an interesting thing because I am one of those people that's like non-invasive. Let's try it because anything invasive, I do, I'm I just don't like needles. Like I just you know needles freak me out. It hurts. I haven't tried Botox. If you do, that's totally fine. Like you do you, but I am. I uh, let me do me, and I that's basically doing nothing. <laughs> you know, so this kind of um. Being able to do it at home, like not having to stick anything under the skin, like it, it's much more comforting from for someone like me. A hundred percent. And and honestly, our big insight and the reason why we call the brand ourselves is, you know, one of our insights, again, listening to our consumers is that as consumers are forced to age, they right now just have two options, right? They can get topical solutions where they're just that topical, they're skincare and you can get great skincare, right? Like the anti-wrinkle creams you're saying. Anti-wrinkle cream, they can be clean, they can be super high end, all of those things and they're great, but they're just that they're topical. They sit on top of your skin. And as you get more profound aging, visible aging, many consumers feel like their only options are to go to cosmetic procedures, understandably, right? Botox, fillers, all of those things. But the reality is, is it's really scary People don't like needles. They don't like blood. It's really they do it the wrong way. And then they you do it the crazy. wrong way. And <laughs> the big insight that we found was that number one is there's this whole place in the middle where it's like, okay, those are the only two options. And our big insight is that consumers, they got these two choices. And so say they finally say, you know what? You're right. I'm going to go get these interventions because I want to look like a better version of myself. But the reality is they go, they get these interventions. They don't look like a better version of themselves. They look like they get a third face. And so then they have this third person in their relationship, which is further separating themselves from who they see in the mirror. And aside from the physical turmoil of that, the emotional turmoil, it's like I've done this and I've like I've lost myself. Like you do something to build confidence in yourself and then right. it backfires. And then you're two right. steps back from where you were, which was already not feeling good about yourself. Right. Right. And so ourself is a call to action to be yourself but just a better version. And we often ask ourselves, when did that stop being okay? Right? When being when did being you stop being okay? So really what we really feel is that with our technology, we're able to brighten, plump and firm your skin. So you really look like the person that you love the most. And that is really 
our higher order mission. And the way we do that is, is through creating, you know, we first of all, just recognize skincare is clearly ready for a revolution. And what we've done is those two worlds of just, you know, topical and then cosmetic procedures, we've created a third state. And that third state are these subtopical at-home treatments. And they're just that, they're subtopical. They're, there's non-invasive technology. It's easy to self-administer so you can do it yourself and it's available to all and you actually get visible results. So I took a look at a few different things from ourself, which, I mean, I'm not shocked since you're the marketing guru here that the packaging and the branding is gorgeous. <laughs> Big shocker. But I love, I mean, the font that you guys used for the logo is so cool. I love it. It's really cool. And then the color scheme and the, even just, you know, the packaging, it's really, really nice. So I tried three things. I tried the daily renewal cream this morning, which is amazing. Smooth, really nice. I have it on right now. I love it. Another thing I have on right now is actually- You look beautiful. Thank you. This other thing is this lip conditioner. This is like high gloss. It's like lip gloss. But there's it's so much more. So maybe you can help me understand all the benefits of this lip conditioner that I'm wearing right now. Absolutely. And then did you have a chance to try the the lip filler? I didn't, but I tried the sunscreen, which was really nice. We went to the beach yesterday with the family, wore this, didn't get burnt. So and it went on really nice. You know, the one thing with sunscreens that I find are really hard, especially this is SPF 50. It's like a layer of white, you know, this went on so nicely and smooth and just like, I mean, it's, it was, it's a great sunscreen. Oh, that's so great. The lip filler I have right here. I didn't try it yet. I think because I didn't know what to do. <laughs> Maybe you can walk me through it. Sure. Do you want to do it right now? Yeah. So let me first tell you. So the, what the lip filler does is it replaces the hyaluronic acid that was always meant to be yours. So your lips are 100% hyaluronic acid, right? And as you age, your hyaluronic acid depletes itself. And what we do is we are able to profoundly deliver and infuse your lips with hyaluronic acids to reclaim the lip volume that was meant to be yours. You get definition, you get suppleness. And what we're able to do is over time, as you keep using it, is it's buildable, right? you get that instant, you'll get an instant plumpness and a nice little instant redness. But over time, as you keep using it, you'll, you'll build it. So we can do it together. So first I want to show you a feature of your lip filler. So at the very bottom, there's another cap. If you open yeah. that up. Oh, it's a well, you'll cap. See there, that's the lip cartridge. And okay. when you buy it, it comes embedded with one and then you get an additional one in your package. I was Which wondering is. what that was. I was yes. like, am I supposed to stick a needle in this thing? Right. Cause it looks so, like one of these, this is it, right? Right. So it's nice. Yeah. So it's, uh, nope. That's, oh, no, your, this is that's the, your peel. Okay. So maybe I don't have it. Maybe. I yeah. You're, it should have come in your box. So the lip, it looks like this. There should have been another extra one in your box. Okay. I'll look for it. It was like There's tucked in on the there. side. Oh, okay. I'll go find it. <laughs> so, okay. So this um, is, um, you're saying it's refillable. So I don't have to, you don't buy a whole nother thing. You could just say, and by the way, it's super addictive and it's really nice to have just those refills around. So it's just like a blade razor model, right? You just, you know, just put the, put the blade back on. How so Venus you, of you. And exactly. <laughs> so when you open it, um, you open the top, you see the depressor button. You're going to basically okay. just keep pumping it till you start to see some white, beautiful encapsulated hyaluronic acid come to its surface. Oh, I wasn't pushing hard enough. Do I have to go down okay. maybe so gravity can help? No, it should it should come up eventually. Keep we uh, pressing all the I way in. It. Yeah, I you have like it? A okay. Little... So so what we what we advise oh, to just... do is you're going to basically fill in your lips. Don't go outside the lines. There is something in here called a vasodilator that encourages blood flow. So you'll start to see some redness in your lips. You're gonna feel some tingling, which is that vasodilator and some nice peppermint taste. And what yeah, you're gonna do is you're gonna nice. you wanna put on at least five layers morning and night which is what we call the jumpstart for the first several days. And that'll start to jumpstart you on your road to more hyaluronic acid in your lips. Interesting. So, cause the thing that scared me about the name is that I'm going to look like a fish. Right. You know? So like, no, I don't I like love, that look. No. And <laughs> so again, this, goes, this is what goes back to our brand is that you don't, you're just going to look like yourself. This is not Kylie's lips. These are your lips and all we're, 
we're able to do is get you back to the lips you had when you had your favorite lips, right? So we can't go beyond that. We're replacing what was rightfully yours. So if you think about the height of your lips, if that was when you were 20 or whatever it was, that's what this is meant to do. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that is truly the distinctions for those people who are like, yeah, I, I noticed that my lips are thinning, but I don't want, I want, I still want my lips. Right. It's like, I, I'm proud of thin lips, you know, like I don't, I'm cool with those. I don't need to right. have them much bigger. Exactly. Like, so this is yeah. just a little pump and it's fun. And it like, it's just a big boost of confidence. I, I love it. And then the um, accompanying lip conditioner, which you have right now is, is literally the best lip balm I've ever used in my life because in addition to giving you this just super high shine that is not sticky, it is also infused. It's infused with vitamin E. It's infused with hyaluronic acid. And so it makes itself just the perfect partner to that lip filler. And I just the duo is, is fantastic. So my thought here, so what I'm feeling is like a little tingly. And because I'm not used to using products like this at all, my initial reaction is like, oh my God, am I allergic to this? <laughs> right. Yeah. So totally. can you walk me through like what kind of chemical reaction is happening? What yeah, you're, you're right it's really a sign that the, so what we love about the product and you're right to sort of wonder about that is that that reaction is showing you that it's working. You're feeling that basal dilator is starting to sort of wake up your lips. So, you know, so many people, as you can imagine, want that instant look, right? It's like, I'm putting this on. I don't want to wait five days for look. Using that basal dilator starts to wake up your lips quite immediately, right? You'll start to, and I can actually see on the screen, you get, if you can notice your lips are getting a little bit pinker, a little bit redder. That is your, those are your, that is a color of your lips. It's just more blood flow coming to your lips. You know, you are so right. Cause I have very naturally red lips. I used to be told like when I used to model, can you please take off your lipstick? I'm like, I don't have any on, you know, like literally no, no, wipe it off. I'm like, I swear to God, I'm not wearing anything. I have chapstick on. So naturally I do have very like bright red ish colored lips. And I feel like as I've gotten older, the color has faded. (laughs) It definitely doesn't feel like they've been as bright. I haven't gotten that comment in a long time. So I can definitely see, though, I don't have any color on my lips and I didn't before. And they do look like they're getting a little brighter. Well, it's so funny. I don't wear lipstick. And when I worked for Bobby Brown, I remember one of my first days, Bobby was I would tell her, I was like, listen, I don't look good in lipstick. She's like, you're right. You don't. She's like, because you have so much blue in your lips. I have very blue lips. So anytime I put on color, I just, it does not look good on me. And so this is my new lipstick because what I get from it, it's just, it's like bitten lip. It looks like a bitten lip, which I love. It's super natural. And it's like the perfect, it's literally like, it it's is like your natural customized. color. So yeah, you wouldn't get like color. this red lips. You would get your natural bright lips. Exactly. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Is there anything else specific of the products that we have? I have this. Tell me about the dark spots. Yeah. Can we talk about that? I don't know much about this, but I need to learn. It is. So the daily bark stop stop intercept is really, it really is probably one of the number one reasons why I joined. I mean, we have so many products launching and, you know, we just to take a step back, what we do as a brand, what we go after, we go after the three biggest skincare concerns in the world. That's hyperpigmentation, lines and wrinkles, and sagging skin. Doesn't matter where you go in the world. Those are the top three concerns. They might vie for first or second position, depending on where you are. Like in North America, it's lines and wrinkles, then it's sagging skin, then hyperpigmentation. If you go to Asia, it's sagging skin and hyperpigmentation. But they're the three biggest. And the lip filler, which we just talked about, was really our filling, right? It's going after sagging skin or loss of volume. And so we have that in for your lip. And we're also launching a hyaluronic, HA plus replenishing serum for your face. For hyperpigmentation, we have an entire regimen to address hyperpigmentation. And I'm a an acute sufferer of melasma. I've been my entire life. And I've spent my life going to dermatologist offices, using Triluma and um, Muesli and, and getting peels and getting lasered and Fraxel and Clear and Brilliant and all those things to, to get results. But then it just comes back the minute I get out in the sun. And so this is truly a regimen that you can use at home. The hero of this regimen is our daily dark spot intercept. It has subtopical brightening 
technology. And what this product is able to do is it's able to knock down your inflammation, which is the precursor to the hyperpigmentation. So it actually knocks down that hyper, that inflammation. So that redness in the skin, those the, the the brown spots and gets you to a much more even stone. And it, what it's doing is basically intercepting hyperpigmentation before it begins, like really halting it at the root. This product is a lifeline for me because dissimilar to some of the other products I described, you can use it morning and night. And if you just keep using it and you use your moisturizer and you use an SPF, you can keep those dark spots from reoccurring. If you're looking for an instant solution as part of your regimen, starting it off with what I think you had the peel there, we have two peels. We have a brightening peel and a dark spot peel. Our brightening peel is also an amazing product. It's an all over peel that gives you instant smoothness, brightness, and even skin tone. You can, I use it, I just call my party prep. I use it before I go out at night. You're really able to reveal this like visibly brighter, more even skin tone. You also, are able to reduce the um, appearance of fine lines and pores. And you're able to do this at home. And then our dark spot peel is a that is basically you're able to actually lift away uh, the appearance of individual dark spots. So this is powered by TCA, which is a powerful ingredient that actually allows you to over time, you'll, you know, sort of like what you would do a peel in a in a dermatologist's office. You would use it over several, several days, and ultimately the peel, the dark spot will fall off with the peel. So again, this ability to do it at home, and then if you do it in tandem with your dark spot intercept and your moisture and your SPF, you have your own at-home system to deal with your hyperpigmentation, which for me is a game changer. Yeah. And so kind of going back to this moment of realizing this is the next thing you were going to go build and do, and which I think... It's almost been two years now, a little over. Yeah, I started in January of 2021. So soon, pretty soon coming up on two years. And so how has it been going? How does it feel to be a co-founder and CEO for the first time? It feels amazing. Being first becoming a chemical uh, co-founder about a year ago, that was the thrill of a lifetime to just to be able to create this alongside Lauren and Scott was just, you know, the thrill of a lifetime. I've learned so much from them. They've been so appreciative of my background. And I just think as a trio, it's it's just really worked. Um, and then now to become the CEO, which is the greatest honor of my life that happened in July. I'm really proud, quite frankly, I'm just really proud to be able to lead this team, this brand, and to deliver for our consumer. That's our North Star is delivering for our consumer and what she and he want and quite frankly, that they deserve. And I feel so proud that I am able to work for a company that is actually developing like true science, true science that is going to deliver the results that is a, that have evaded us in, until now. And so to be able to do that and do it, you know, uh, with a brand that is also, again, let's go back to the beginning of the conversation, that's emotionally connecting, connecting with where the consumer is right now and positing these ideas that you're okay, you're enough. And that's, that's just been super meaningful for me. And speaking of those kind of like self-limiting beliefs that we have about our looks, what are some of those maybe limiting beliefs that you've had maybe about yourself and building a business for the first time? Totally. Oh my gosh. I mean, every day, right? You know, every day, you know, when I got presented this opportunity, I started as the CMO and chief commercial officer. I was like, this technology is outrageous. It's outrageously effective. Can I deliver a brand that's going to stand up to this technology, right? And it was very tempting, right, to, 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 you know, to, you know, all the voices in your head, like it has to be a science brand and it has to have, exp- it has to have like exponential numbers and like, it has to be a brand that you can't pronounce, like to be sciencey. And what I was so thrilled about was that, and I had so many insecurities about this, was that everyone was willing to actually have the science stand for the science, but have the brand emotionally connect. You know, and that was a huge fear for me because I was like, am I doing a disservice to this profound technology? For the first time we have this technology, shouldn't the brand just sound, be something you can't pronounce, right? And so, you know, lots of concerns about if I'm doing the right thing, concerns about am I the right leader? I've never been a CEO before. I've never done it. And so the fact that they would trust me with this role 
is I have huge insecurities about, but it's actually what propels me. It is the fear that gets me, makes me want to leap out of bed, but it's the conviction around what we're able to do. And my, um, and I'm resolute on wanting to serve the consumer. I know we're going to make this a success. There's no reason for it not to be because it's the right product. It's the right brand. It's delivering against the right need. And we, we serve the consumer. So I have tons of fear, but it, it propels me every day. It's so funny how I feel like this balance of fear that propels us versus like the confidence and kind of that knowing or those feelings around it being successful because you believe so much in it. It's like that combination of the two. You can't have just one or the other. I feel like two, both of those things are so important. I hear it very often in a lot of my interviews that there's this sense of, can I really pull this off? Wait, actually, I am pulling this off, but I always kind of knew I could. <laughs> it's like, it's interesting. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, you know, when you look at your journey in your, your career history, what are some of the pieces of advice that you might have for aspiring entrepreneurs really wanting to take the leap and maybe thinking I should stay at my job a little longer or they've has been sitting on idea or they're in the trenches right now and they're like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, I, you know, one of the parts of my path that I've been told you about, and I'm glad you're asking this question is, I'm going to sound like a fossil and I am, is when I was at Gillette and the internet had just started. I started my own internet company while working as a full-time executive. It was called Bag Envy. We, I started with a girlfriend of mine who was at Yahoo. We did it out of our homes. It was hand, we found, found hard to source handbags from around the world and sold them. We became an overnight success because InStyle, we had no marketing budget. InStyle voted us the best new website in the world, gave us two pages in the magazine, and that was history. And we proceeded to run this business for five years while we both worked at our jobs. And I am so glad I did that because it allowed it me to get it out of my system, but with security. For me and my risk profile at the time, I had conviction. We just dipped our toe in it and ended up being a huge success. But then it all became such a success that we came to a point where we had to really figure out this is what we wanted to do full time, right? And we had such great success and so many problems that we got to a point where we all sort of abandoned it, right? And I was glad I got it out of my system. But I always knew from that experience that I needed to ultimately, ultimately be in a role that had that entrepreneurial because that's where I'm the most creative. That's where my best ideas are are heard, quite frankly. And um, so I knew I would come back. So for me and my risk profile, doing it slowly made the perfect sense to me. And then it made sense for me now in this role, because for me, this was still a bit more calculated. It's entrepreneurial for sure, but it's also my co-founders are super experienced. They have a technology. I know it's going to work. It's going to just really be up to us to make sure that we've got the brand and we're commercializing this in the right way. You know, my advice to everyone is you should follow your dreams. You should follow that hunch. You've just got to figure out how, what's the best way to follow it that fits with your risk profile. Right. Can you afford to leave your job or not? And if you can't, that's fine, but try to find a way to make it work for both. Right. Whereas I'm like the type of person who would just quit their job. I, I ask that question all the time. Can you <laughs> broken, right? And, and I ask this question both ways: Can you afford you to leave your job, and can you afford to stay? Because there's right, because there's a cost. There's a cost on both ends, and you've got to decide, you know, which you can deal, which right. one you can deal with. Right. Just, I think you know, one final question that I have in your journey of building your business. You know, when you think about maybe one of the biggest challenges that you've had and how you've had to overcome it, you know, I think there's a lot of struggle out there with entrepreneurship, a lot of people feeling alone in building their business. And what is maybe some advice that you have or things that you do to keep yourself positive and motivated kind of every day in the right mindset? A hundred percent. You have to do something for you every day. You have to just to give your space the time to think, because otherwise you will be lonely. You will just be in your thoughts. 
So find out whatever that is. For me, everyone knows it's about me. For me, it is, I, you know, is it's Pilates or running or cycling or swimming, something active. That's for me. That's like, that's my place where I think the best. And I feel like I've got that time. So whatever that is for you, whether it's painting or photography or cooking, like whatever that is, I just could not recommend that enough. The other thing I would say is make sure you, you know, you are connecting with your friends and you're connecting with your other colleagues. You know, I feel so fortunate that I've just got an amazing, just amazing group around me, whether it's friends or colleagues or family where I can talk to them and talk about, talk about my fears. And, and what's so nice is to hear about other people's fears and what what's going on at their job and what are their frustrations? Because whether you're at a big company or an entrepreneur, there's actually a lot of similar themes. So just realizing you're not alone and you're not the only one is just is the best therapy, I think. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Vimla, for being on the show today and sharing your amazing journey. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.